The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Killing Myths. The infamous crash of Air France 447 has been cited many times as an indictment of fly-by-wire technology and automation on the flight deck. Again and again, this accident is used as a stick to beat aircraft manufacturers who employ automation by casting doubt within the minds of passengers and pilots alike. Headlines like The Tragic Crash of Flight Air France 447 shows the unlikely but catastrophic consequences of automation. Crash! How computers are setting us up for disaster. The safety paradox of airplane automation. Should airplanes be flying themselves? A lesson in the hazards of automation. Intriguingly, the loss of control problem has been attributed to sophisticated cockpit automation. Questions raised about Airbus Automated Control System. Ill-informed prejudice lingers to this date, and if someone wants to damn new technology or quibble about its use in the cockpit, their go-to quote is, remember Air France 447 as if that crash proves their point and encompasses all their concerns about computers and the whole fly-by-wire thing. Such poorly researched opinions are present in the press, supposedly authoritative books, outwardly learned papers, and even with the pilot community itself, with old jokes being trotted out about the new Airbus pilot asking, what's it doing now? As a fairly experienced chap who has flown nothing but fly-by-wire aircraft since 1987, I'm going to dispel some of the myths and untruths that surround this accident and perhaps bring a little understanding. First, a little history lesson on automation and autopilots. The inflatable Otto of the movie Airplane has actually been around since 1914, although he looked a bit different then, probably a bit younger, when Lawrence Sperry fitted a gyroscopic stabiliser apparatus to a Curtiss C2 biplane designed to improve stability and control. In front of a large crowd, he disentangled himself from the shoulder yoke that controlled the C2's ailerons and flew past with both his arms held high. The aircraft continued on a straight and steady course, with the pilot obviously not handling the controls. The crowd was on its feet, cheering and shouting, Remarkable! Extraordinaire! Formidable! Sperry had stunned the sceptics with his no-hands-flying. Gyros and accelerometers linked to flight controls removed the tedium and fatiguing need for a pilot to handle the controls on long, straight legs. They became standard fit in all airliners, so that by the 1950s it was almost unheard of for a new machine to roll out of a factory without this facility. They increased in sophistication until in 1966 a British Trident performed the first fully automatic landing of a commercial flight with passengers aboard. 
So, far from being a new thing, the battle of keeping a pilot's handling skills honed through practice has been going on for over half a century. Now let's take a little look at fly-by-wire. The increase in size, weight and speed of airliners necessitated the introduction of powered flying controls. From this moment on, the pilot wasn't directly in contact with the control surfaces, the elevators, ailerons and such. His stick merely pulled on steel cables, which in turn moved valves on hydraulic rams that moved the controls and did the heavy lifting for the pilot. What's more, there was no feedback from these controls and it was possible for a heavy-handed pilot to deflect control so much that it would overstress or even stall the aircraft. As a result, feel systems were built into the flight controls that gave an artificial impression that the controls were heavy at high speed and light at low speeds. These were often no more than springs, whose tension was increased by a suitable system of levers and pulleys as airspeed increased. If you've ever tried to lift a drum of steel cable, you'll know what prompted the next development. Long runs of steel cables up and down a fuselage are heavy, and getting them round corners complicated. Remembering that all they did was turn hydraulic valves, there had to be an easier way, and it was, of course, by using electric wires. This was already a thing in the 1930s, so don't try and tell me this is a new concept. The Soviets had the first servo-electrically operated aircraft, a Tupolev ANT-20, and the first purely electronic fly-by-wire aircraft was the Apollo Lunar Training Vehicle, which flew as early as 1968. From then to today, the technology is basically the same. The pilot's control inputs are measured by signal transducers on the control stick, which generate an electrical command. The microphone I am using right now is a simple signal transducer which converts the mechanical movement of air pressure waves I create as I pontificate into an electrical signal. It's the same in an aircraft. The electrical signal is processed, passed down wires to electrically controlled servo valves on the flight control hydraulic jacks. As this technology became more sophisticated, Analog computers replaced the original electric controllers, the first of which was in the Avro Canada CF-105 Arrow, which was under development in the 1950s. Concorde was the first production fly-by-wire airliner, and the first F-16s also used analog control computers, but these soon gave way to the more capable digital control computers we have today. The advantage of a digital control computer is that it can take multiple inputs from a myriad of sources such as external sensors, pitot and static pressure, temperatures and such, as well as the pilot's inputs, to give appropriate signals to the flight controls. In a fighter, this allows the pilot to fly an aircraft that is inherently unstable to achieve undreamed-of control authority and carefree handling, 
because stalls, spins and exceeding aircraft limits such as G-forces can be prevented. In a mundane airliner, such exotic exploits tend to upset the passengers, and in an airframe that is inherently stable and pedestrian, the level of control modification needed is minimal. The first fully digital fly-by-wire airliner was, of course, the Airbus A320, which rolled out in 1987. However, just like a sophisticated fighter aircraft, the A320's control systems protect the aircraft from exceeding certain limits. The envelope protection prevents the aircraft from pitching up or down excessively or rolling upside down. It limits the minimum and maximum speed and, probably most importantly, allows the pilot to get the maximum performance from his wing without the danger of stalling. So, on to the first big question. Was this control system the cause of the crash of Air France 447? Unequivocally, no. Now, the second big question. Why didn't the very clever flight control system prevent the crash of Flight 447? Answering this question forms the second part of this tale. There have been entire books devoted to this accident, but I'm going to deal with it using a single sheet of paper, so forgive me if I keep to the point. Air France 447 was an Airbus A330-200 series, the very aircraft type that I was flying on my last two sectors, en route from Rio de Janeiro to Paris, and cruising over the Atlantic, about halfway between the east coast of Brazil and the west coast of Africa. They were flying through an area of weather known as the Intertropical Convergence Zone, where large cumulonimbus clouds often grow to high levels. Being a long night flight, the normal crew of two pilots was augmented by an additional first officer. The aircraft was cruising at flight level 350, Mach 8.2, as they were still too heavy to climb safely to the next level, flight level 370. When it was the captain's turn to rest, he listened to the first officers brief each other and then went to the crew rest area, leaving them to fly the aircraft. The more junior of the first officers was the pilot flying the aircraft and his colleague was monitoring. Navigating through a cluster of convective clouds, it's probable that the crew entered heavy cloud made of ice crystals, which enter the pitot tubes, exceeding the probe's heater's ability to melt the ice and evacuate the resulting water. This blockage would have caused erroneous and conflicting airspeed indications and caused the autopilot and autothrust to disengage and the flight control computers to degrade from normal law to an alternate law, with fewer protections. Incorrect speeds were shown on the left instruments for 29 seconds, the standby instruments for 54 seconds, and the right instruments for 61 seconds at most. Throughout this, and for the rest of the flight, the only input to the flight controls came from the pilot's side sticks. When the autopilot disconnected, the right seat pilot, who was the nominated pilot flying, called, I have the controls. 
In the light turbulence they were experiencing, the aircraft rolled to the left by less than 10 degrees and descended by around 300 feet. In alternate law too, the roll controls are in direct law in that the ailerons deflect in direct response to the control inputs, just like a Cessna 150 might. The inputs that were applied to the aircraft were rapid and heavy-handed, officially described as excessive and incompatible with the recommended handling practices for high-altitude flight. The aircraft oscillated in roll due to over-controlling, and the hard pull-up increased the angle of attack sufficient to bring on the oral stall warning. Only four seconds had elapsed since the autopilot disconnected. By ten seconds, both pilots had realised that they had a discrepancy in speed. Indeed, the pilot monitoring stated, We've lost the speeds, which should have prompted them to apply the unreliable speed memory items. Had they done so, they would soon have recovered the situation. However, neither pilot mentioned these vital actions, which required them to set a pitch attitude and a power setting suitable for level flight at their height. Having identified the airspeed problem, the pilot monitoring then began working through the ECAM warnings. He called out the loss of autopilot, autothrust, and the change to alternate flight law, as well as the thrust lock warning that was continually reminding the handling pilot that he now needed to set engine power manually. At this point, the monitoring pilot noticed the excessive pitch which had exceeded 10 degrees nose up, a completely inappropriate attitude for their height. Indeed, at one point, they reached 7,000 feet per minute of climb, and he tried to coach the other pilot into reducing the pitch. After making a few selections in an attempt to regain accurate speed indications for his colleague, the monitoring pilot seemed to become overwhelmed and concentrated entirely on recalling the captain to the flight deck. Despite knowing that the aircraft was unable to fly at flight level 370 due to their weight, the aircraft was still climbing and, of course, its speed was reducing. 30 seconds after the start of the event, the left side instruments returned to normal and read 223 knots. 30 seconds later, the right side speed also read correctly. However, for a reason that defies logic, the handling pilot continued to apply backstick and climb the aircraft until it reached 38,000 feet, with the engines now in full thrust toga setting. The self-trimming stabilizer had moved slowly from 3 degrees nose up to 13 degrees nose up and the angle of attack reached 16 degrees. Despite the nose high attitude, the aircraft could no longer climb and it was now going back down with an increasing angle of attack which built until the wings stalled. 
with the stall warning blaring, the left seat first officer took over control and pushed his control stick forward to lower the nose and recover from the stall, but he did so without pressing the override push button that would disengage the other stick. Because the right seat pilot was still pulling his control stick hard back, the inputs cancelled each other out and the attempt failed. The aircraft's speed now fell below a level where the angle of attack vanes are considered valid and, as a consequence, the stall warning stopped. When the handling pilot did relax his nose-up input and the speed started to increase, the angle of attack indications again became valid and the stall warning restarted. Instead of applying a stall recovery, this prompted the pilot to pull back again. By now, the captain was on the flight deck, but instead of taking his seat, he remained on the jump seat. The more senior first officer, who was in the left seat, said, We've lost all control of the aeroplane. We don't understand anything. We've tried everything. And then, climb, 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 climb. When the handling pilot replied, but I've been at maximum nose-up for a while, the captain realised that he was causing the stall, and he shouted, No, 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 don't climb! By now it was too late to break the stall, and with a rate of descent exceeding 10,000 feet a minute, the handling pilot swore and said, We're going to crash, this can't be true, but what is happening? When Flight 447 hit the water, all 228 souls on board were killed instantly. When examining this accident, it's easy to get sidetracked by things that might have saved the situation. Had modified pitot tubes been fitted, they might not have iced up. Had the aircraft not gone into alternate law, the protections would have saved the situation. Had the aircraft been fitted with central control columns and not side sticks, the mishandling errors might have been easier to notice, but none of these things caused the accident. The accident was caused by the failure of the handling pilot to manually control his aircraft when the autopilot disengaged. Despite correctly diagnosing a failure in speed indications, both pilots failed to apply the memory items for that situation, something that they were required to know. When one pilot grossly mishandled the aircraft, the other didn't take control in the correct manner by stating, I have control, and if necessary, pressing the takeover button. When the aircraft warned that they were entering a stall, the pilot didn't apply the most basic of recovery actions that every pilot is taught from almost their first lesson onwards. In fact, he did exactly the opposite and pulled the stick further back. Despite coming onto the flight deck when the aircraft was still at altitude around 30,000 feet, the captain and by far the most experienced pilot did not get into his seat and take control. Automation didn't cause this accident, and neither did fly-by-wire, computers, 
or any other fancy gadget. It was purely a lack of piloting skills, an understanding of high-level handling techniques, a knowledge of emergency procedures, and the most basic stall recovery drill. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.